0: Good to see you all this morning, this evening. It is this evening, isn't it? You have to forgive me. Where did the day go? Please uh, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Some of you may remember uh, Shelley's parents. They were here sometime last year, Uh, probably about this time last year, actually. And they stayed with us for six, seven, eight weeks. Well, last night we were talking to them on Skype, and... uh, One of the things we talked about there was um, a church, the church that uh, I went wife-shopping in, uh, which was the church that they were attending at the time, where I found my wife, Um, they had a pastor there, and yesterday we found out that he's recently resigned. And how often do we hear this of pastors where they, they get involved in too many things, and they struggle, and they end up getting burnt out? Um, They get too involved in things that aren't their area of gifting. They want to control things that aren't their areas to control. Uh, And they end up taking all this burden and all this weight on themselves, and they're unable to sustain it and and build it and and work with it. And so they end up, as we say, burning out. Well, that's one side of the, the coin. The other side of the coin is, of course, that there are loads of churches who allow these pastors to burn out. Because the people in the congregations are not active in the congregation, they expect the the paid staff to do all of the work, while they sit in the pulpits, put money in the in the offering plate every week, and do very little. Maybe they hope to have their souls fed, and maybe they do a little bit of evangelism, Lord willing, during the week. Um, but we we often find ourselves, don't we, in a place where we have these two elements and we try to balance them. How do, we, how do we, on the one hand, live in such a way that we demonstrate to the world that we are saved and yet on the other hand, every pastor, and as a pastor, as a leader in the church, we do the things that God has called us to do. And as individuals, because God calls each of us individually to different roles in, in ministry, there's a, there's a pressure on each of us to make sure that we balance ourselves so that we do that work, but yet we don't overextend ourselves and do things that God has not called us to do. Neither of these approaches of either throwing ourselves into everything and doing everything or the other one where we do nothing and we just sit in the pew, neither of these approaches are biblical. We think about the New Testament church. We think about Paul. How active was Paul? He was all over the place. He had three missionary journeys all around the known world of the time. He, he planted dozens of churches. He led multitudes of people to Christ. He performed miracles. He was so full in his dedication that he was willing to die for the gospel, that he was willing to be put to death. To And we remember even those times where he was stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. And yet, by some work of God, he Revived and went on his way. And it's an amazing amount of work he did. But yet, on the other hand, we also look at the New Testament and we see the church there loving one another. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, of love of one another, you have no need to be told because you've been taught by God to love one another. And so we see in the New Testament, there's this balance between Paul, on the one hand, doing all this work, but the congregations, on the other hand, loving one another and supporting one another. The difficulty, of course, is how do we think about ourselves in the midst of this? If we are the pastor, or if we are the person in the congregation, we need to think rightly about ourselves. As Paul said in Romans twelve three, to consider ourselves with sound judgment. And that's a difficult thing to do. Because our tendency is to either do nothing and let God do all the work, or think it's all about us and we do all the work, and God does nothing. And we just hope that it kind of all comes together somehow. Well, when we think about the passage before us tonight, we're going to see Paul's approach to how he, how he did this, how he managed this, and how he saw this balance in his own life. So let's, let's go and read. We're just going to read the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. And then we're going to uh, get get into it. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all... As to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or whether they, so we preach, and so you believed. Pray with me. Father, as we open your word this evening, we are conscious that we have a great need, Lord. We need your word to instruct us, but we need your spirit to help us understand it. I need your help, Lord, to convey the message that you have put in your word And each of us needs your help, Lord, to understand what it says. We cannot do these things without you, Lord. And yet also there is a responsibility on our part. Please help us, Lord, to bear this responsibility well before you in order to do it in a manner that pleases you, that you would be able to work in us and that your name would be exalted in us. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the reason I read that whole passage out is because the, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through to 11, or 8 through to 10, really. Um, the reason I wanted to read the whole passage is because the context is really important here. Paul is, a, is, is beginning, uh, in Corinth there is a group of people who are saying that the resurrection of the dead is not what we would think of as a resurrection. It's not a physical resurrection, it's maybe an immaterial resurrection. It's the resurrection of the spirit rather than a resurrection of the body. Um, and therefore they say the resurrection 's either already happened or it 's kind of irrelevant, and it doesn 't really matter and so he 's addressing this false teaching in the church, but as he goes through here, he starts by explaining Christ appeared he 's explaining the the fact of the resurrection it happened he you know, you know it happened because there 's material eyewitnesses, and he lists those material eyewitnesses, and there is a group of Around 500 people who saw Christ. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? When people say, how can can we trust that the resurrection really happened? We can point. There were 500 people who saw him. There was a group of people who went out and proclaimed that he rose, and very few people objected to it. There were stories made up, and we're not going to go into this. This is, this is by the way. But the point is that he's going through and he's enumerating all the people that Christ appeared to after his resurrection. And he says in verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, the reason we're going to start there is because this starts off with Paul's understanding of himself. And we need this as a balancing point for ourselves. If we think about, who am I before God? Who am I that God has given me this ministry? It needs to start with that realization that Paul had of where he started. And he calls himself, he uses a specific word in this verse that is never used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. I'm not going to tell you Greek. We don't need to know that. But it's a word that is, is translated in our Bibles as untimely born. Some uh, commentators will regard this as a, as a miscarriage or, in some cases, an abortion. However, there are other words that would mean an abortion. This word is, more technically, it, it kind of has this idea of a, a, a termination of a pregnancy prior to its expected time, whether the baby lives or doesn't live. The point is it's an early termination of pregnancy. Hence, you have the, the translation... Um, untimely. He's untimely born. When Paul talks about this, he's talking about it in context of his of the appearance of Christ. So let's go back to uh, Acts chapter 9 quickly, and I just want to explore a couple of things there. What does he mean when he uses this word? In what way was he in one untimely born? Was it is this, as some commentators say, mean to say that he has a really low view of himself, considers himself as somebody who is uh, grotesque and misformed? Or is there something more here? And I submit that there is a little more here. Let me read uh, chapter 8, verse 3 to start with. And you remember, of course, that when they stoned Stephen, Saul was standing there approving of what was going on and looking after the comments of those who had taken them off so that they could throw their stones at Stephen. So here in chapter 8, verse 3, After this, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Here's Paul. He is a good Pharisee in his time. But he has set himself against the church of Christ. He is out there doing everything in his power to destroy Christ's church. But what happens? Verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was, as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. When Paul is talking back in 1 Corinthians, we'll come back to that in a moment, about this, this untimely birth, he's referring to this event. He's not referring to the state in which he is at the time he's writing to the Corinthians. He's referring to the state in which he was when Christ appeared to him. And so he's thinking of this, and he's saying, he's really got, there are two things about a baby born early, that are relevant to Paul in this case. The first one is that he is weak and helpless. I mean, a normal baby is weak and helpless, but a baby born prematurely is even more so. And in this case, we see that with Paul. You know, you see someone get saved, get converted, and and they're still pretty normal. Here, Paul is blind. He can't see. Not only that, and so he's got to have these people leading him into the city. Not only that, but he also gets no help from those who should be helping him, the church. He goes, you know, you talk to, you look at um, Ananias a few verses down, and and when God says, go and see this man, Ananias says, I've heard about this guy. And and God says, go. Ananias doesn't want to go near it. You go down to verse 26, and he was trying to associate with the disciples in Jerusalem, but they were afraid of him, not, you know, not regarding him as a disciple, not believing that he was really saved. They thought it was some sort of trick just to, so that he could uh, cast them in jail, get close to them, find out who the leaders were and deal with them. So he was helpless. He was without any support from the church and any of his own faculties. He was, he was really dependent on other people. But more importantly, he was a child who was born unexpectedly. A child born early is often, you know, it can be a month, it could be more, before its time and that's Paul here he was on his way to Damascus to arrest people and God stopped him and said this far and no further he was a man persecuting the church but yet God or Christ specifically turned him on a dime and when Christ called him this made a huge impact on him when we think about our conversion do we think about the state we were in before we were saved. This is what Paul was thinking of as he's considering himself in First Corinthians 15. He's recognizing that he is a persecutor of the church and completely, for that reason alone, being the furthest away from the love of God and loving God, he is not in any respect close to God or, or, or even willing to be saved. And yet Christ does exactly that in him. So he was deeply humbled by this. The effect of this to us should be that when we think about our sin, whether it was before our salvation or after our salvation, it should be a cause of humbling. There's a man a couple of centuries ago called Charles Simeon. He was, uh, his, his biography is quite fascinating. He passed the same church for 53 years. The first 13 years of that, the people in his congregation would not support him. They wanted the the other guy to be the pastor, not him. And so they had, in those days, pews that you could lock. And so for 13 years, they locked those pews so that anybody who wanted to come and listen to him could not sit down. So he would literally preach to people standing in the aisles and around the front. But that's not what's important about this man. This man wrote, and he understood his sin, and he dwelled on his sin. And he had a specific reason for that. Let me read to you what he said. He said, I've never thought that the circumstance of God's having forgiven me was any reason why I should forgive myself. On the contrary, I have always judged it better to loathe myself the more in proportion as I was assured that God was pacified toward me. There are but two objects that I have desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness. The other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he did that because the more he saw his sin, the greater the forgiveness of Christ appeared to him. And this was a cause of motivation. When he would consider that congregation that would have little to do with him, that didn't want him there, he would think, well, who am I? I am a sinner. I deserve none of this. And he would see the grace of God and he would extend that grace to others. It's very similar to what's going on with Paul here. Paul is saying here, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And then he says in verse 9, this is chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, for I am not fit to be called an apostle. I am the least of the apostles. Not only was Paul called to be saved, but he was called to serve. The calling he had as a to be served, you know, the call to call to serve for Paul, was one which was really quite elevated. He said, "I am not fit to be called an apostle." Well, what? What's an apostle? You know, we we know what the twelve apostles were, but what is what does it mean to be called an apostle? Well, the word. It goes back a long way. But in the New Testament times, it wasn't widely used. So in the church, it took on this kind of some significance. In the early days, it was a military term. So a a commander would take an individual, and he would commission him to do a job and send him out. In Paul's day, you've kind of got that same idea. Christ commissioned Paul specifically. This individual said, this man I have chosen, he's going to be commissioned. And then... He gave him all his authority and sent him with that authority. So an apostle is one who's not only sent, but sent bearing the name and the authority of the one who sent him. If you remember back in Acts 9, God said to Ananias, This is my chosen vessel to bear my name to the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says that he was set apart from inside his mother's womb to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And just a chapter later in Galatians 2, he says, just as Peter had been selected to do this to the Jews, so he had been chosen to go to the Gentiles. So Paul is looking at this, and he is saying, I was a persecutor of the church. I was trying to destroy Christ, and he not only saved me and cleansed me, But he gave me this divine commissioning with all his authority and said, go to the Gentiles. Proclaim my word to them. You, not you and your friends, you are my chosen instrument for that specific purpose. This resulted in two things for Paul. One, he was greatly humiliated, greatly humbled. He recognized his sin. He recognized his lack of worthiness. And he also recognized his lack of qualification. He needed, he had nothing in himself which he could offer to God. He was completely dependent on God. You remember, of course, that we're talking about the resurrection. The last last appearance of Christ was to Paul. Well, and that was his divine commissioning. Well, you remember the other apostles, of course, had spent three years with Christ. They had been personally discipled by Christ. Can you imagine that? Being personally discipled by Christ, being taught by him, witnessing his teaching, seeing him, you know, restoring limbs. And, you know, remember the man with a withered hand is suddenly restored. You imagine just seeing it, just come back to life. They saw that on a near-daily basis with Christ. And when they and they'd been particularly, specifically prepared by Christ for their specific ministry as apostles. You remember what John said in the introduction to the first John. He said, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, this we proclaim to you. Paul had none of that. Paul was, he was, he was on his way to destroy the church, and Christ stopped him and said, uh-uh, go to Damascus, preach the word. Go to the Gentiles, preach the word. He changed them in an instant. So Paul looks at himself and all of this in the midst of this discussion of the resurrection and pauses and said, I am the least of the apostles. I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But listen to his next statement, verse 10. But, is it right there. But, but, if, it was, if that was all it was, if it was I'm a persecutor of the church, well, there'd be no story. But God intervened. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And, you know, If you think about this, you can almost hear a little resignation in there. It's like he's got this huge authority, this divine bearing on him, and he says, well, it's by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, I can't change it. The mission he had was God's divine appointment to a specific task in a specific time. He can't change that. You know, it's interesting, he doesn't say, I am who I am. He says, I am what I am. Our personalities can change. Paul's personality changed instantly. He went from being a persecutor to a lover of Christ. Personalities can change. Have you ever heard someone say, this is just who I am and I can't change? Or this is just who I am, implying you can't change? Well, in Christ, that's a lie. The world says you are predetermined to be who you are and you can't change. But God says, no, you are to change. And that's what happened with Paul. He changed. And it was not the who he was that he was concerned about. It was not the who he was that limited him. It was the what he was. Firstly, a believer in Christ. One, saved by the grace of God. But secondly, one commissioned by the grace of God. And this passage is really about this commissioning. It's really about his role as a disciple, Charles Hodge sorry, his role as an apostle. Charles Hodge said the grace of God in this context con- context my lips are sticking together is not the love of God, but the influence of the Holy Spirit considered as an unmerited favor. This is not only the theological and popular sense, but the scriptural sense of the word grace in many passages. So Paul's reckoning here, not so much that it is his salvation, but as his appointment as an apostle, his appointment to do this work for God. Now, the humility that he had now, because he understood his sin, because he understood the magnitude of God's grace toward him, motivated him. But it motivated him to this response. He was not the sort of man to sit there in the pew and let God do with him what he wanted. Look at what it says. His grace toward me did not prove vain. He receives this grace and then he feels almost a burden to do something with it. Otherwise, it's a waste of grace. That's kind of the implication here. God has appointed him with grace for a particular ministry And his role is to not let that grace fall apart. Go nowhere. Come with emptiness. Be without content. Think of it like this. Nobody builds a bomb and sends it to the other side and explodes it without a warhead. Right? Without a payload. If there's no payload, it's just a hunk of metal burning through the air that's going to fall somewhere, and it might hurt someone, but it's likely just going to make a bit of a hole and fall apart on impact. But if you put a payload in it, it does massive damage because now it's got content. Now it's got substance. Well, that's kind of what Paul has in mind here. He doesn't want that grace to kind of be like that bomb where it just floats and goes nowhere. He wants it to explode. He wants it to have a huge effect. And if we look back in history, what happened under Paul's ministry? Christianity literally exploded. Paul's concern was that his grace would be would come to him, it would become empty, vain, contentless, without effect. That was his concern. Have you ever thought about the grace that God has given to you for ministry? Is it effective? Is God are you allowing God to do in you what he has appointed for you to do? Turn with me to, a few pages back to First Corinthians 12. First Corinthians 12, verse 6. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Verse eleven: The one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually, just as He wills. These are grace-born gifts. God gives them to us that we would use. That take the grace He's given us and make it explode. He doesn't want it to fizzle and bang and make a little hole in the ground and nothing more. He wants that grace that He puts in us to have effect. We need to concern ourselves with this. And Paul was concerned about this. Notice that in 15 verse 2, I know we're going back and forth a bit, but 15 verse 2, he says there, um, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed what? In vain. There he's saying, and getting at the fact that if you believe the gospel... And then you change it. And as the, these guys, were, the whole rest of this chapter is about how they would change the idea of the resurrection. And Paul says, this is fundamental to the gospel. And he's saying there, essentially, if you've believed in vain, you're going to change part of the gospel. You can't change the gospel and have an effective faith. Just like, in the same way, he's saying here, you can't have you know, grace given to you and do nothing. It doesn't work that way. Remember James chapter 4 uh, sorry chapter chapter 2 verse 14 to 16 faith without works can it save no if you have faith you will have works faith is an evidence of grace if you have grace you will work paul's concern is that having that grace come to him in vain. And he's specifically talking about his particular uh, grace. Look at his grace, well, in the Greek it says the to me, the grace toward me, my specific grace. So he's not talking about merely the grace that God has extended to you for salvation, though that's part of it, but he's talking about the specific grace, which will be your gifting, your ministry that God has given to you. Let that not be given to you in vain. What did Paul do? Paul labored. He said, I did not want it to prove vain, but I labored more than all of them. And he's looking at the other apostles now, and he's looking, and and, and this sounds boastful, right? He's like, I labored more than those guys. I worked harder than them. And you're like, what on earth are you thinking, Paul? Is this the same Paul who said, I don't want to boast somewhere else, you know, several times? But he's not boasting, Notice there that he's saying he worked. We have that same responsibility to work. And and I have a whole list of reasons why we should, and I'm going to skip through them. In fact, I'm going to skip them entirely. But here's the thing. Paul isn't boasting here. He's not saying it was all me, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So he's not saying it was him doing all this work, And we need to bear responsibility for making sure our grace that God gives to us for ministry does not become empty, contentless, and without effect. But the labor we do is not our own labor. It's not like we do all this work and we bear all this responsibility and that's it. It's the grace with him that worked. And so too, God gives you grace. For your ministry, and it is God who works in you to willing to work his purposes. Ephesians 2.10, for God has prepared works for you in advance that you would walk in them, right? Remember that? I remember that. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we also would walk in them. It's up to us to do the walking, but it's up to him to do the working, Does that make sense? So he's not boasting. In fact, it's almost the opposite. He's saying it's not me, it's God. God has done all of this. He's not looking at his work and asking for a pat on the back. He's looking at all his work and saying, Praise God for what he's done with the grace he gave me. Paul's view of gifts and grace is consistent. In Ephesians 3.7, he talks about the gospel which he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He sees his ministry as the work of God, as, a, as an affecting of God's grace in his life. And we too need to think of ourselves the same way. There is a temptation. We have this uh, tendency to extremes. We tend to be the sort of people who either throw ourselves into work and forget about God. or We tend to be the sort of people who don't do anything and just say, well, the Lord will reveal my gift to me, and then I will do whatever that is that he requires me to do. But notice that here Paul is not talking about gifts. He's talking about grace. When people say to me, I'm not sure what my gift is, I say to them, it doesn't matter. Go in the grace God has given you. Do what he has put in front of you to do. Don't worry about the gifting. That will become clear in time. The grace God has given you for ministry is effective, whether you know you're gifted in it or not. God will affect his grace if we work in it. This is the same as what's repeated in uh, Philippians, of course, in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And isn't that the way it should be? Our goal should be, and we've got this in Second Corinthians 5, 9, right? Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or present, to be What? pleasing to the Lord. That's our ambition. In doing what pleases Him, the grace that He has given to us will be fulfilled. Our goal is not to fall on one of those two extremes. Our mission for each one of us is to consider what God has put before us, the grace that God has given to each one of us individually, and then to work in that prayerfully Dependently, with humility, knowing we are sinners, knowing we are incapable, but knowing God is capable, and giving Him the opportunity to demonstrate His greatness and His power in our lives. My exhortation to you today is exactly that go in this grace that God has given you, do the things that God has put in front of you to do, be dependent, be humble know your sinfulness. Know that God does not depend on you, but know that you depend on him and know that God has appointed you for good works here at Placerita Baptist Church for you to accomplish in the time that you are here. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful that it is not dependent on us. What a joy, Lord, to have this burden lifted from us Father, what would we do if the weight of all your kingdom rested on our shoulders? And yet, Lord, there is a sense in which it does. You have appointed us individually for a specific task, for a specific ministry amongst your people, to proclaim your word, to minister to people in acts of service, to show mercy, to administer different things that need ministration. And Lord, we are so utterly dependent on you to do those things because we cannot live and do them ourselves because we are mere sinners, incapable of any good works without you, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us, motivate us, Lord, by revealing to us the depths of our sin, the greatness of your grace, and work in us through your spirit to affect the grace that you have given to us, Lord. We thank you so much for Christ, for his sacrifice, for your intervention into our lives at the point in time in which you did, without which we would not know you. And Lord, our ministry is no less dependent on you than our salvation was. And we are so thankful, Lord, that you call us to join with you in this work. Help us to honor you, to be pleasing to you by being a people who seek to love one another And to live acting out this grace every day, we ask for your name's sake. Amen.